This is a session that everyone has been looking forward to because uh, who knows what the connection is between Florence Nightingale and artificial intelligence. It takes almost intellectual acrobats to connect the, uh, the two. Uh, Mike Starbird is going to uh, introduce our speaker. Uh, I've once uh, introduced Mike himself as being the most famous mathematician at the University of Texas, and then someone said that's an insult to the mathematics department. <laughs> <laughs> Mike. Well, I found that pretty insulting right away. I... Yeah, yeah. Jeez. Okay, well, in any case, my job not only to defend myself, but to introduce James Scott here. So James, James is a, a wonderful um, uh, scholar, a, a Bayesian statistician, who uh, was uh, started at the University of Texas at Austin as an undergraduate, and I had him. I had the pleasure of having him in two of my classes, at least two, two, two classes, and as did Roger. And um, uh, and he has uh, gone on to have a wonderful career. He had a Marshall Scholarship, went to England on a Marshall Scholarship. He has uh, came back, got a PhD at Duke, and and has been a professor here in the business school and in the Department of of statistics and data science in the College of Natural Sciences. Uh, he's won many uh, awards, including uh, international awards, and as well as an NSF Career Award, the Savage Award, which is uh, by the one given a year by the International Society of Bayesian Analysis for his uh, doctoral work, and a Bayari Award for early career research achievements in Bayesian statistics. He's, he's really accomplished. But what I like, among many things I like about him, is that he's also accomplished in the other areas, such as teaching. He's won the UT System Regents Outstanding Teaching Award. How much did you get for that? Uh, $25,000? Was that <laughs> no, it? No, not quite. How, yeah. much, how much was uh, it? Something like that. Something like that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted him to share, but no, no, do I hear anything about but, but, uh, but I wanted to say one, one, uh, one less uh, you know, formal one, which is, uh, one of the things I admire, among many things I admire about James, is, is um, his, his uh, strategy of taking advantage of things and then taking them to another level. So while he was an undergraduate student here at UT, he was in my, uh, among other classes, his, my number theory class. And for the only time in the history of my teaching at, uh, at UT, uh, he organized a co collection of students in the class, and he, and he said, We'd like to learn more number theory than you're offering. Could we come in on Tuesday and Thursday and have an, other sessions? And so a group of him, led by him and three or four others, came in every Tuesday and Thursday for the last half of the semester and learned things beyond the course. There's no credit, you know, just good. <laughs> so it was, uh, and I think he's done this uh, throughout his, his career, and it's, um, and it's great. The other thing that is great is that he is taking his work and taking it beyond the academy. I think that our academia is guilty of inward looking. And, and the fact that he has written uh, for people outside the academy is really important. He's written a new book called AIQ, How People and Machines Are Smarter Together with co-author uh, uh, Polson, which is coming out next month next month by Macmillan Press. And I wanted to read uh, a blurb by Stephen D. Levitt, who is the co-author of Freakonomics. You know Freakonomics? Oh, yeah. uh, and he said of this coming book, there comes a time in the life of a subject when someone steps up and writes the book about it. 
AIQ, that's the book that he just wrote, explores the fascinating history of the ideas that drive this technology of the future and demystifies the core concepts behind it. The result is a positive and entertaining look at the great potential unlocked by marrying human creativity with powerful machines. So I think we're all looking forward to reading his book when it comes out next month. And uh, so it's my great pleasure to introduce James Scott. <laughs> Thank you so much, Roger, uh, for inviting me here. It is always such a, a pleasure uh, to be among friends and colleagues back in British Studies to see many familiar old faces. Uh, and thank you very much, uh, Mike, uh, for that kind introduction. Uh, Mike, I'll, I'll say a little bit about the book before I, I kind of launch into the subject of today's talk. Uh, and it's my co-author, Nick Polson, and I thought of this book first as a way to answer all of the great questions that our students had about artificial intelligence. Things like, how does a self-driving car work? How does an Amazon Echo understand what I'm saying? Uh, that sort of thing. Uh, we noticed that there was a lot of writing about AI uh, out there that was very technical, uh, a lot that was kind of fizzy pop sociology, uh, and then a lot that was uh, borderline science fiction of the Elon Musk, the robots are coming for you variety. Uh, but if you wanted a non-technical version of how this stuff actually works, then you were stuck. Uh, but then along the way, uh, we realized that the public narratives surrounding artificial intelligence uh, were broken. Uh, on the one hand, you have nothing but hype about AI coming from the business world. Uh, you know, if you believed all of those IBM Watson ads doing, uh, during the Super Bowl, you would come away believing that AI is going to fix the healthcare system and sell more Cheerios and make your toilet smell like roses and, and so on. Uh, but then on the other side, you have folks claiming that AI is gonna destroy everything we care about, from our jobs to our democracy uh, to our privacy. Uh, with AI, we've clearly reached the point uh, where a non-expert can't tell the difference between the hype and the reality. Uh, so as educators, Nick and I just came back to a simple bedrock that if you want to participate in the great debates of the 21st century, uh, it's really important for people to have a sense of what's hot air and what's genuine promise when it comes to AI. And they can't do that without understanding how the underlying technologies actually work. Uh, in particular, they can't do that without understanding the role of data in AI, which is why we wrote AIQ. Uh, now, I'll tell you a quick story here that will, uh, will give you some sense of how naive I was in dealing with a mainstream non-academic press for the first time. Uh, when we talked with our American publishers uh, about cover designs, we told them we wanted something simple and elegant, academic, right? Uh, and they came up with this, which I really liked, right? So uh, Nick and I thought it was great. Uh, we then asked our British publisher if they could do something similar, and they said, yeah, sure, sure, we'll do something very much along those same lines. Uh, and then finally in mid-March, uh, I got an email from the British publisher uh, saying that this was their idea of something similar, right? <laughs> so, uh, so I told them that I hated it. Uh, in fact, when I saw the email, I was in an airport at the time, uh, and my reaction to this uh, design was to point out that I could find exactly one book in the airport bookstore uh, that was, uh, had a cover that was in such a lurid shade of yellow, uh, and I didn't think it offered a very flattering comparison. <laughs> So uh, my wife was laughing at me, by the way. She was in the airport, too, as all this happened. And she said, you're colorblind. What do you care? And I said, I'm not that colorblind. <laughs> uh, so uh, you know, in the end, uh, the publisher was pretty firm about the need for a design that pops or, or some nonsense like that. Uh, so if you see AIQ in America, you'll get the simple, elegant cover. And if you see it in a Commonwealth country somewhere, uh, it will be despite my protest in that very fluorescent shade of yellow. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I will, I will stop complaining about yellow now uh, because I, I did come here to talk about a serious topic, uh, which is healthcare. Uh, now, if you read the, uh, the stories about healthcare these days, you will encounter two very different narratives. 
Uh, first, there's the bad news, uh, which is that healthcare systems across the rich world are in awful shape. Uh, obesity and heart disease are up. Costs are spiraling out of control. Uh, in 2016, two-thirds of all British NHS trusts ran a deficit. Uh, and Americans, meanwhile, spend uh, far more of their GDP on healthcare than anyone else and aren't any healthier to show for it. Uh, doctors uh, tend to spend their days, at least in America, sweating lawsuits, fighting insurance companies, uh, and typing data into an electronic health record system. Uh, compared to non-doctors, they are 40% more likely to abuse alcohol or drugs uh, and twice as likely to commit suicide. Uh, but then perhaps as an antidote uh, to all of these depressing stories, uh, we are also told that artificial intelligence is set to transform healthcare. Uh, AI evangelists describe a futuristic world where your surgeon is assisted by a laser-guided robot, just like the Google car, uh, where your vital signs are algorithmically monitored for anomalies, just like your credit card, uh, and where your treatments are personalized, ju just like your Netflix account. Uh, it's a world where your smartwatch can tell you whether you're going into labor, uh, and where you can snap a picture of a skin lesion with your smartphone and get an instant diagnosis. Uh, in this world of the future, doctors no longer spend a third of their time doing manual data entry. Instead, they tell everything to a sort of Amazon uh, echo on steroids, uh, which immediately updates your medical record. Uh, it is a future where AI technology, update, um, uh, accessible through smartphone, uh, brings better health care to underserved communities, probably first here in the rich world uh, and then eventually in the developing world. Uh, it is a future where childbirth becomes safer, uh, where diseases are caught earlier, uh, and where oceans of human potential reach full tide. Uh, so here's the question I'd like to address today. Why aren't we there already? Uh, after all, each of the AI technologies I just listed already exists in some form or another, and it is dead obvious what's needed in order to prompt their widespread adoption. Uh, we need better data, we need deeper collaboration between healthcare professionals and data scientists, and we need smarter laws that can foster innovation and yet still safeguard patients and their privacy. Uh, but as I'll argue today, just because something good can be done with data doesn't mean it will be done. Uh, if you look across the spectrum of human activity, I claim that healthcare is the one area where artificial intelligence could probably do more good than anywhere else. And yet the grim reality, today at least, is that we are still likely years away from seeing our most advanced AI technologies used to help real patients in substantial numbers. Uh, and I'm not talking about speculative future technologies. I'm talking about stuff that exists right now. For example, uh, here is a smartphone app designed by researchers at Stanford. You can snap a picture of a skin lesion, and it will, using something called a deep neural network, classify it into one of over 2,000 different types of skin lesions, and it will do so, moreover, with accuracy comparable to a panel of 23 board-certified dermatologists. Uh, I'm talking about something developed here at the University of Texas by a chemistry professor named Livia Eberlin that made the news, this is the BBC. Uh, they call it the mass spec pen. It's a pen that you can insert into a tissue during cancer surgery, and within 10 seconds, it will run mass spectrometry and tell you whether that tissue is cancerous or healthy, which can really help tell you which parts of the tissue to resect uh, during cancer surgery. Uh, I'm talking about epidermal electronics. It's a little tattoo, no thicker uh, than the width of human skin. You can see for scale right here. Here's a person's wrist. Here's the little epidermal electronic with EKG and EEG sensors, with temperature and hydration sensors, uh, with wireless technology that you could hook it up to your cell phone, programmed with algorithms that can uh, monitor your vital signs for anomalies. This is stuff that exists right now. 
And the reasons why we aren't seeing widespread adoption of these technologies have nothing to do with science or computing power or statistics and everything to do with culture, incentives, and bureaucracy. Healthcare systems in America, Europe, and Asia differ in important ways, but they all share some similarities in terms of how AI could help and why it isn't helping already. As I like to put it, cancer and kidney disease have no nationality, but there is a word for bureaucracy in every language. Now, I know that historians uh, tend to be suspicious of an analogy, uh, but I am not an historian. I'm a data scientist, uh, and I spend my days using healthcare data uh, to help doctors and patients. Uh, and in that role, it really helps me, at least, uh, to seek an historical example of someone who faced a similar problem and overcame it, uh, someone who possessed the knowledge, uh, the stature, uh, and the moral authority to stand up to the powerful people who run healthcare systems and say, basically, get your act together. Uh, and my example for that is Florence Nightingale. Uh, you all surely know Nightingale as the most famous nurse of all time, uh, the, uh, the lady with the lamp who tended the wounded British soldiers of the, of the Crimean War. Uh, but when she wasn't caring for soldiers, Nightingale was also a skilled data scientist who successfully convinced hospitals uh, that they could improve healthcare using statistics. In fact, there's no other data science, uh, scientist in history who can claim to have saved as many lives as Nightingale. Uh, and as a result of her achievements in 1859, she became the first woman ever inducted into the UK's Royal Statistical Society. Nightingale's path to unlocking the power of healthcare data offers some really good lessons for today. Uh, in her quest to bring data uh, analysis to healthcare in the 1850s, uh, she fought entrenched interests that defended the status quo against reforms that could help patients. Uh, and the fight to do the same thing today uh, is playing out in a shockingly similar way. Now, I know that some of you in the room are Victorianists, uh, and even some of you who aren't uh, will still know a lot more about Florence Nightingale's biography than I do. Uh, but for those of you who are non-experts in this area like me, uh, I want to give a brief bit of background uh, on Nightingale's life here. And I hope I won't give you any cause to tell me I've gotten something wrong. Uh, so Nightingale became famous primarily as a result of her experience as a nurse during the Crimean War. Uh, Britain had first sent troops to the Crimea in the spring of 1854 to lay siege to Sebastopol, the main harbor for Russia's Black Sea Fleet. Uh, and people back in London had assumed that the war would be over quickly, uh, which sounds awfully familiar. Uh, but there would be no quick victory, uh, and it soon became clear uh, that uh, the British Army, uh, which was a generation removed from its last major war against Napoleon in 1815, uh, was not at all prepared to face the Russians. Uh, and nowhere uh, was this more obvious uh, than in the Army's decaying medical system, uh, where basic matters of supply chains and sanitation were thought to be beneath the dignity of the medical men in charge. And the result of all this poor planning was predictably a logistical and humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, a soldier wounded in the Crimea uh, would find himself packed onto a grimy ship. Here's the Crimea. Uh, here's the field of battle. Packed onto a grimy ship and sent 300 miles away uh, to the Barrack Hospital at Scutari, uh, which was on the Anatolian side of the Bosporus opposite uh, Constantinople. Uh, and there the soldier might wait as long as three days uh, on the ship to be taken ashore, uh, where he would be uh, loaded on a stretcher, uh, or maybe strapped to a mule for this kind of jarring climb up a steep hill uh, to the hospital right there. Uh, and the hospital was filthy, and I mean filthy. Uh, rats crawled over the injured soldiers uh, who lay sprawled on thin mats. Uh, cholera and dysentery were rampant. The sewers were clogged. The toilets leaked excrement into the main courtyard. Uh, and a water main was blocked by a decomposing carcass of a dead horse. Who knows how it got in there? Uh, the hospital was badly short of medical supplies, clean clothes, healthy food, you name it. Uh, many amputations were even done without chloroform. 
Uh, by the autumn of 1854, uh, the conditions at Scutari had become a bad scandal for the government back home. Uh, the uh, September 30th editorial in the Times channeled the public's growing outrage. Uh, it went as follows. Not only are the men left to expire in agony, unheeded and shaken off, though catching desperately at the surgeon whenever he makes his rounds through the fetid ship, but now when they are placed in the hospital where we were led to believe that everything was ready which could ease their pain or facilitate their recovery, it was found that the commonest appliances of a workhouse sick ward are wanting. Well, as you can imagine, Sidney Herbert, who was Secretary of War at the time, came under enormous uh, public pressure. He was a family friend of the Nightingales, uh, and he had seen her rapid rise uh, in the field of nursing. Uh, and so he asked her to lead a government-sponsored group of nurses to Scutari to assist the doctors and to tend to the suffering soldiers. Uh, Florence agreed, and she steeled herself for the worst, but really nothing could have prepared her uh, for the conditions she found upon her arrival. Four miles of corridors with the conditions I described to you, uh, men in, uh, sleeping 18 inches apart, uh, and their lives made miserable by what Nightingale in her diary called foul air and preventable mischiefs. Uh, the hospital's supply chain had broken down completely. Uh, Nightingale could find no linen to make bandages. Uh, she couldn't find fresh shirts to replace those soaked with blood. Uh, there were plenty of gangrene, lice, bugs, and fleas. Uh, yet as Nightingale wrote to a friend back home, no mops, no plates, no wooden trays, no slippers, no knives and forks, no scissors for cutting the men's hair, which is literally alive, no basins, no toweling, no chloride of lime. Uh, she soon learned that her requests for uh, provisions had to pass through no less than eight different government departments back in London. And when those requests were finally processed, sometimes uh, the wrong supplies were sent or the right supplies were sent to the wrong place. Uh, at Scutari itself, Nightingale encountered nothing but dawdling and obstruction from the chief purveyor. Uh, matters got so bad that she asked the Times to entrust her with the donations it had collected for a soldier's fund. Uh, that way she could bypass the chief purveyor and go shopping for necessities herself in the Grand Bazaar of Constantinople. Uh, and after that, she effectively became the shadow purveyor at Scutari uh, as the chief conduit for the enormous variety of goods uh, that civilians sent uh, to Scutari. Things like food, cash, slippers, linens, a drying cupboard, even, I noted in reading about this, raspberry preserves and ginger biscuits from one Mrs. Gollop of Buckinghamshire. God bless her. <laughs> uh, she soon found herself charged uh, with reorganizing virtually every non-medical function at the hospital. Uh, she described her role as cook, housekeeper, scavenger, washerwoman, general dealer, storekeeper. Uh, the effort tired her to the bone. She worked 20-hour days. She took meals on her feet. Uh, she was exhausted by, as she put it in a letter home, the quantity of writing, the quantity of talking, the dealing with the selfish, the mean. I feel like Prometheus bound to the rock of ignorance and incompetency. Uh, yet all the while, she was making a difference. Uh, only two months after her arrival, uh, the hospital chaplain noted in a letter a surprising air of comfort and enjoyment. Uh, there were stoves on every ward. There were tin baths in every corner. Uh, every man had a bed, a clean mattress, and a change of shirt twice a week. Uh, and mortality was dropping, having peaked at a shocking 52% of admissions in the winter of 1855. It had fallen to 20% by March and thereafter continued downward through the following winter, uh, by which point it had reached the level of mortality uh, no higher than the rate among civilians in a major city. Now, Florence Nightingale could hardly take all of the credit for this herself, and she never tried to. Uh, still, for more than a year, uh, the hospital at Scutari had been a ship barely surviving the gale. Uh, and in the words of an army colonel who'd witnessed first, uh, things firsthand, Miss Nightingale was its only anchor. 
Uh, in their letters home, her colleagues uh, noted her energy, her example, her way of cutting through red tape with a machete. Uh, they recall the darkest days of winter uh, when wounded troops arrived by the hundreds, and when one, as one fellow nurse put it, the officials lost their heads, crying out to flow for this and that. And they also recalled the chaos that reigned uh, during Nightingale's brief absences, uh, like the one day in 1854 when she took a brief rest from her duties as shadow purveyor, and when the men of C Corridor therefore all ended up drunk because they had guzzled their wine straight from the bottle as no one had given them any cups from the store cupboard. Uh, back in Britain, uh, the uh, a famous journalist of the Times conveyed the image of Nightingale that would endure forever. And it was this. Uh, when all the medical men, he wrote, uh, have retired for the night and silence and darkness have settled upon those miles of prostrate sick, she may be observed alone with a little lamp in her hands making her solitary rounds. And with time, of course, the Nightingale legend uh, only grew. Uh, poems and sentimental songs were written about her. Uh, soldiers' private diaries of the day recorded daydreams of leaping to her aid in the face of some imaginary danger. Ships, racehorses, babies of every social class were named in her honor. Uh, but Nightingale herself called this reputation, and I quote, nothing but a false popularity based on ignorance. Uh, she actually believed that her work back in London, far after the war was over, ultimately made a much bigger difference. Uh, and modern historians uh, largely agree with her. Now, much of the historical work on Nightingale concerns her legacy in the field of nursing, uh, specifically her role in the decades-long period of reform in the training and certification of nurses that took place in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, but here I want to focus on a different part of Nightingale's legacy, which is her legacy as a data scientist, not as a nurse. Uh, a big part of that uh, is her personal analysis of medical statistics from the Crimean War. Uh, Nightingale, it's fair to say, was really into math and statistics. Uh, a lot has been written about how she aspired to be a nurse from a very young age, about how she treated injured dogs, about how she nursed a, a cow with a bad cough in the field next to her house, uh, how she visited the sick and the dying of the village uh, nearly every evening as a teenager. Uh, but also from a very young age, uh, she was precociously talented at math. Uh, as a child, she played mathy word games, I took breath and I made 40 words, she wrote in her diary at age seven. Uh, her parents' letters talked of how, uh, of how Nightingale positively threw herself into her math book as a child, uh, solving word problems from a vanished age. I'll give you an example of one of Florence's Victorian era word problems. If there are 600 millions of heathens in the world, how many missionaries are needed to supply one to every 20,000? <laughs> But as a teenager, uh, she, uh, she learned geometry by reading Euclid herself. Uh, she learned logarithms from her cousin Henry, who studied mathematics at Trinity College, Cambridge. Uh, and she once begged her parents to give a visit to her uncle Octavius for the simple reason that he had a fantastic math library. Uh, and moreover, all of this mathematical ability was married to an incredibly strong power of will. Uh, a will, in fact, that her sister Parthenope called the most resolute and iron thing I ever knew. As a young adult, Florence would awake as early as 3 a.m. to read anything statistical she could find on social welfare. Uh, minutes from Parliament, data from the census, a report on the sanitary conditions of the laboring classes of Great Britain. So, uh, as you might imagine, uh, Florence came home from uh, the scandal of, sc of scootery full of righteous indignation. Uh, in her diary, she wrote, I stand at the altar of the murdered men, and while I live, I fight their cause. Uh, and it absolutely was a fight against those in the army and the medical establishment who stood in the way of change and defended the status quo, uh, like Army Dr. John Hall, for example, uh, who dismissed Nightingale as, and I quote, 
a petticoat imperieuse. Uh, and Nightingale brought all of her weapons to bear in that fight. Her intellect, uh, her network of friends, her acid pen, I'll give you some examples of that. Uh, but above all, math and statistics, uh, which she clearly viewed as the mightiest arrows in her quiver. Uh, Nightingale's first biographer, called E.T. Cook, uh, nicknamed her the passionate statistician, uh, which really didn't stick in the public's imagination the way the lady with the lamp did, uh, for obvious reasons, uh, but did provide a far better description of how she changed the world for the better. Uh, Nightingale was especially adept at using graphical representations of data, data visualization in modern parlance, uh, to draw the nation's attention to the conditions that had prevailed in military hospitals. <coughs> As one of her colleagues put it, Nightingale's pictures of data could affect through the eyes what we may fail to convey to the brains of the public through their word-proof ears. Uh, she even invented a new kind of statistical figure, which I'll show you here, uh, the polar area or coxcomb diagram, uh, which here shows changes in mortality over time using a series of colored wedges. So it begins here in March of 1850, uh, rather April of 1854. And as you go clockwise around the, uh, the the rows here, the size of each colored wedge represents deaths due to a particular cause, and by far the largest pie slice here is deaths due to preventable uh, disease. And as you can see, it peaks in the winter of 1855, down here in January uh, of 1855 into February, and then falls starting here in the spring of 1855 and all the way around until 1856, until the deaths due to disease are no different than uh, in a major city. Uh, so her analyses and these figures uh, revealed that in the first seven months of the, uh, the Crimean campaign, British soldiers suffered a 60% mortality rate from disease alone. That was higher than Londoners had experienced during the Great Plague of 1665, and it was higher even than the rate of death among a population of civilians who have cholera. It was literally safer to have cholera at home than to take your chances in the Crimea, and that was before you faced a single enemy bullet. Uh, Nightingale referred to this as the finest experiment modern history has seen as to what given number may be put to death at will by the sole agency of bad food and bad air. Uh, an experiment she reckoned that had sent it 16,000 men to death. And Nightingale did more than anything else in the wake of the Crimean War uh, to bring these facts to the public's attention. A second very important data science legacy of Nightingale uh, was her contribution to evidence-based hospital design. Uh, together with uh, English statistician William Farr, she analyzed data from Army hospitals during peacetime, uh, and she discovered that because of poor sanitation, uh, the Army's rate of mortality at home was twice that of a comparable civilian population. Uh, she called this situation criminal. You remember her acid pen I referred to earlier? No different than to take 1,100 men out upon Salisbury Plain and shoot them. Uh, on account of her report, the Army Sanitary Committee visited every Army barracks and hospital in England between 1858 and 1861, and they recommended concrete steps that were taken to retrofit barracks and redesign hospitals, which produced an immediate drop in disease-related mortality across the British Armed Services. Uh, her recommendations soon caught on in the civilian world as well. Hospitals with long corridors and stuffy rooms came to be seen as infection incubators. Uh, her preferred model of hospital construction uh, became the norm, which was the pavilion-style hospital, which had uh, wings of light and abundant ventilation. Uh, these Nightingale wards, uh, my sister-in-law, who's a doctor in England, tells me, uh, are still popular to the extent that NHS hospitals built in the 40s and 50s are almost all Nightingale wards. Finally, uh, perhaps the least known of Nightingale's data science contributions was her role in creating a new standard of professionalism in the collection and analysis of medical data. 
Now, I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard it said of generals uh, that they are always fighting the last war, uh, but a doctor uh, trying to learn from the experience of the Crimean War couldn't have even done that. The medical staff at Scutri had collected no statistics. Uh, they had preserved very few case histories. They had done almost no post-mortem examinations. Uh, in many cases, sick men were loaded on one side of the boat in the Crimea, shipped 300 miles, and dumped off the other side of the boat dead when they reached Scutri. Uh, Nightingale despaired at the fate of the, of the soldiers, uh, but she also found it deeply discouraging that this scientific treasury had been lost to mismanagement. And upon returning to England after the war, she also found that these failings were mirrored in the civilian system. The country had no system for the collection of even the most basic medical statistics, uh, recoveries, lengths of stay at a hospital, deaths due to different disease, and so on. Uh, and even if there had been such a system, there would have been no way to compare these statistics across hospitals because every hospital used its own idiosyncratic classification system for disease. Nightingale saw this lack of attention to good healthcare data as an emergency. Uh, she saw how the new discipline of statistics was transforming other fields like astronomy and earth science. She also noted how continental statisticians, uh, most notably the eminent Belgian Adolf Ketelet, uh, who was one of her idols, uh, were using these new statistical tools to look at complex social science questions in crime uh, and demographic change. Nightingale saw incredible potential in these new mathematical and statistical tools. Uh, but in her view, that required much better healthcare data. And so to that end, she drew up a standard set of medical forms. Uh, she obtained the endorsement of many of the world's leading statisticians. And she urged the big hospitals in London to begin using these standardized forms. Uh, she also lobbied the government to begin collecting data on illness and housing quality as part of the census. Uh, from top to bottom, her work on evidence-based healthcare clearly foreshadowed the coming 160 years. Her ideas formed a clear model for the international system of disease classification used today, which really is the bedrock for all of modern epidemiology and medical data science. So finally, uh, we come back to the modern day. Uh, and the questions about today's healthcare system that I raised at the beginning. I think that Nightingale's three data science legacies all have very clear parallels today. Uh, and for me, at least, they also raise some very sharp questions. Uh, Nightingale spoke of the foul air and preventable mischiefs. Uh, and while the air in uh, hospitals today may be a lot less foul, there are, I assure you, mischiefs aplenty. Uh, one big question, uh, for me at least, is this. How should we staff and train a modern healthcare team? Uh, after Nightingale, no hospital could function without nurses. And my question is, when will the same be true of data scientists and experts in artificial intelligence who today play almost zero day-to-day -day role in the practice of healthcare? A second question is how evidence-based hospital design should work today. Uh, Nightingale helped to establish new sanitary standards. Uh, hospitals were re-engineered from the ground up in response to her findings. But when will hospitals undergo another era of redesign to accomplish what is now possible using data science and AI? When, in other words, will data hygiene be taken just as seriously as patient hygiene? Finally, uh, the most important question of all is how medical statistics should be collected, shared, analyzed, and used. Uh, we've improved a lot in that department in the last 160 years, thanks in no small part to Nightingale's efforts. Uh, but as I'll argue here, uh, we've improved only in certain ways, and we could be doing so very much more. Uh, in light of what's happening outside healthcare, this is starting to look like a moral embarrassment. We live in an age when Formula One race cars are monitored uh, in real time by algorithms and teams of engineers, uh, when your movie watching preferences are the subject of multi-billion dollar AI operations like Netflix, and when your propensity to click on an ad for dog food is analyzed on supercomputers using 
millions of variables and billions of data points. Yet for the most part, we still rely on numbers that Florence Nightingale could have crunched with pen and paper to quantify the risk that your kidneys will fail. And in some ways, we haven't improved at all. Uh, a 2017 paper in the Journal of the Royal Statistical Society referred to Nightingale's 1860 protocol for hospital data collection as conceptually more complete than many systems today. Uh, which leaves me, and I think it should leave us all, wondering when will medical data science move into the 21st century? So I want to be clear up front that this is not the fault of individual doctors and nurses. It is the fault of the whole healthcare system. The plain fact is that in healthcare today, most data simply goes to waste. It's no different than those soldiers on the boat in Scutari. It comes on one side of the boat, is used to send you a bill, and then basically gets dumped over the other side of the boat dead. Now, to illustrate this point, I want to tell you a story. Uh, it is a story of a man from somewhere on the East Coast of the United States. We'll call him Joe. He's a real patient, but Joe's not his real name. Uh, who died at age 62 with chronic kidney disease. Uh, Joe's story tells you a lot about how the contemporary approach to medical data science is failing patients and why a combination of better data curation and artificial intelligence could prevent so very much suffering. Now, by his mid-40s, uh, our patient Joe was already suffering from type 2 diabetes and congestive heart failure. Uh, maybe his job was stressful, maybe his diet and exercise habits were poor, we don't know. Uh, but whatever the mix of causes, they finally caught up with him. Uh, and a few weeks shy of his 47th birthday, Joe had a stroke and was rushed to the emergency room. Uh, Joe survived the stroke, uh, and although his blood pressure and diabetes at that point marked him as having a higher risk for kidney disease at some point in the future, uh, for now, his kidneys tested fine. Uh, the standard measure of kidney function is something called the GFR. I want to see if I can pronounce this right. It is the glomerular filtration rate, the GFR. Uh, Joe's GFR was estimated at 99, which is well above the danger zone. Uh, for some reference here, a GFR of 60 or below indicates mild to moderate loss of kidney function, and a uh, GFR of 30 or below means severe loss. Joe was at 99. Now, over the next year, he made nine more trips to the emergency room for problems of one kind or another, none of them explicitly related to his kidneys. Uh, on two of those occasions, he was admitted to the hospital, uh, and, on, and his kidney function was measured. His GFR was first 96 and then 95 a few months later. Uh, this decline was a little bit steeper than the expected 1 to 2% decline per year in a healthy patient, uh, but still, each individual reading was way above the threshold that doctors use to think about danger here. About a year after his stroke, uh, Joe started making regular trips to an outpatient clinic, eight visits over 14 months. Uh, and each time a doctor ordered a routine series of tests uh, and the lab techs entered the data on his kidney function into a, an electronic health records database, the same database, I should add, uh, that his hospital used. Uh, his GFR numbers yo-yoed a bit uh, between 60 and 75, which was still above the threshold of 60 for moderate loss of kidney function, uh, but still quite a bit down from the prior year's reading of 99 and on an unmistakable downward trend. Uh, at age 49, two years after his first stroke, uh, Joe was readmitted to the hospital and his GFR was measured at 54. Uh, over the next several months, he made 10 more visits to the ER as well as a dozen more visits to the outpatient clinic. Uh, Joe was very sick uh, at this point, as you might imagine. A month before his 50th birthday, his GFR was measured at 40, well into the danger zone. Uh, yet he received no treatment that might have prevented his slide toward kidney failure. Uh, we can only speculate why, uh, but one reason might be that test results sometimes keep, uh, take a couple of days to come back from the lab, uh, and by which point the patient might be already home, checked out of the emergency room, no longer under the direct care of the doctor who ordered the test in the first place. Who knows? 
Bottom line is over the next three years, Joe had 20 further encounters with a doctor, and his kidney function was dropping at a scary rate, below 30 by age 51, below 20 by age 52, at which point Joe was finally referred to a kidney specialist more than a year after his kidney function had fallen below the level of 30 that typically triggers that kind of referral. Uh, but for Joe, kidney function, uh, kidney failure, I should say, was by now inevitable. Uh, three months after his first appointment with the specialist, uh, his kidneys gave out. He was rushed to the emergency room, uh, his 25th such visit since his first stroke. His GFR was measured at 12. Uh, his kidney function had declined 34% per year each of the last five years from his initial reading of 99 after the stroke. Uh, the doctors in the ER put him on emergency dialysis, uh, which is one of the most traumatic and expensive procedures on the books in medicine. Uh, and for the next decade, uh, Joe became what uh, the insurance industry refers to as a superulizer, which is just management speak for an appallingly sick human being, uh, one of the 5% of patients who account for 50% of all healthcare spending in the United States. Uh, and in Joe's case, that meant uh, severe diabetes, stage 5 kidney disease, angina, vascular disease, inflammatory connective tissue disease, along with a series of several heart attacks. Uh, his kidneys were tested 124 times over that decade-long period, uh, which included 26 more visits to the ER and nine to a kidney specialist. Uh, his GFR bounced around, but it never again uh, rose above 20, uh, and Joe died a week shy of his 63rd birthday, uh, roughly 10 years after beginning dialysis. So my question is, what did Joe die of? Uh, and in one sense, the answer is clear. Uh, his kidneys failed. Uh, but in order for that to happen, something else had to fail first, in a manner so complete that to me at least it beggars belief. Uh, for if you take all of Joe's GFR readings in the eight years after his stroke and you plot them over time in a scatter plot, that's the trend right there. In those three years of steep decline between ages 47 to 50, when he falls below that level for a specialist referral, uh, not a single one of Joe's healthcare providers had looked at a simple scatter plot of his GFR readings over time. The issue was quite literally one of failing to connect the dots. Doing so would have yielded a simple and I think to all of us obvious uh, prediction. This guy's fun uh, kidney function is de declining so rapidly that it is almost surely going to keep declining. And if it does, the result is going to be very painful and very expensive. So my conclusion is that, yeah, Joe certainly died for want of a kidney, but more fundamentally, he died for want of a scatter plot. My question is, how could this have happened? I actually had a discussion uh, with, uh, about this topic with a friend and colleague of mine uh, named Dr. Catherine Heller, who is a professor of statistics and machine learning at Duke University. Uh, it was Catherine who brought Joe's attention to, uh, a case to my attention in the first place. Uh, and I will, uh, I will quote for you what she told me. Uh, in retrospect, she said, uh, that steep decline between ages 47 and 50 uh, represents such an obvious missed opportunity. All you have to do is draw a straight line through the cloud of data points, and you can see where things are going. So why did no one, whether human or machine, draw that straight line? This is the essential question in modern healthcare. To understand the answer, we have to revisit two earlier questions that Florence Nightingale asked 160 years ago when she pondered how the new mathematical tools of the 1850s might be used in hospitals of that age. First, how does the healthcare system use data today? And second, in light of new data analysis technologies, what could it be doing instead? So today, the main way the healthcare system uses data is to create 
checklists. Uh, these checklists encode the standards of care of medical bodies, things like the American Medical Association, uh, the UK's General Medical Council. Uh, and these standards of care, in turn, are driven by data from published research findings uh, about what warning signs to look for, about what treatments actually work, about what diagnostic protocols help the most people, that kind of thing. Now, look, I think medical checklists are great. Uh, to me, the way they're created and updated represents a triumph of data over anecdote, which is something that if Florence Nightingale were around today, she could take immense pride in. Uh, checklists save lives uh, by helping doctors catch subtle clues when making complex decisions. Uh, some of you may have even read the Checklist Manifesto by the surgeon Atul Gawande uh, about how checklists can help make complex decisions everywhere, not just in medicine. Uh, and I could recommend the book. Uh, Gawande makes a fantastic case. Uh, but I will also point out that checklists can fail, uh, especially when they rely on what Catherine Heller uh, in our conversation about Joe's case called threshold thinking. So to see that, let's return to the trend that's really obvious from this scatter plot of Joe's kidney readings. Uh, so Heller, to me, in our conversation, surmised that every doctor along this tragic trail of dots uh, right here was thinking about Joe's case in terms of a binary threshold on a checklist. Is the patient's GFR above 30? Check. Are his blood levels of potassium above 5.5 millimoles per liter? Check. Does he have normal levels of albumin in his urine? Check. Now, all of those checks can tell you something about Joe's kidney function on that one isolated visit, and they're really important for delivering good health care. Uh, but those checks don't tell you anything about the long-term trend. So even though Joe had been hurtling towards that terrible threshold for years, he hadn't yet crossed it, and nobody raised an alarm until it was basically too late. Uh, so in retrospect, to me at least, this shouldn't be surprising. Um, Checklists, as useful as they are, are supposed to help doctors understand and respond to what's happening right now, not what's likely to happen in the future. Uh, that's an inherent design feature of checklists. They focus the doctor's mind on the details of the present. Uh, but in a world where the biggest and most expensive medical conditions are chronic diseases that unfold over a time scale of years or decades, that feature of checklists is starting to look like a bug. You might ask, why not just fix the bug uh, with a longer checklist by adding an item that encourages doctors to look at the long-term trend? Uh, so would it have even been possible for a doctor at Joe's bedside uh, to call up a scatter plot like this of his historical electronic health records and, and plot them over time to look for a trend? Uh, the short answer is no. Uh, maybe you could do it if you were a database expert, uh, but it certainly would not be a simple and obvious way for a doctor to use a modern electronic health record system. Uh, to see the trend in Joe's GFR readings, you really would have needed to go back through the electronic health records one reading at a time, and ironically, this almost surely would have been easier back in the days of paper charts. Just recall the power of Nightingale's figures and how clearly the underlying trend jumped out of a figure like this. And I reflect on the fact that in the subsequent 160 years, we haven't managed to bring those figures to patients' bedsides. To me, that's a tragedy. Uh, of course, this is also where we begin to see the power of artificial intelligence. Uh, because in modern medicine, uh, it's not just one set of readings to look at, either in time or uh, over, uh, over time. Uh, it's hundreds or even thousands of readings, blood tests, urine tests, EEG, EKG, heart rate, blood pressure, clinical symptoms, social factors, and soon real-time data on a patient's genetics or epigenetic profile. There is just so much data. You've never seen this much data in your life. It is hard for a human to comprehend it all, even as a single snapshot, much less as a story that unfolds over time. 
And then finally, there's the issue of how this kind of hypothetical look for trends item on a checklist would fit into a doctor's usual workflow. Uh, when you show up to the emergency room, your doctor's main concern is how bad is your case right now? Should you be treated and sent home or are you sick enough to be admitted to the hospital? Doctors face high stakes and enormous pressure in making those decisions. And even outside of an emergency room and back in a normal clinic setting, they have to make them fast because there are dozens of other patients in the waiting room who need their help too. How reasonable is it to expect those doctors to stop what they're doing, fire up a statistical software package, download some data from a database, and mine through a vast collection of electronic health records, all to find the one or two historical trends out of thousands or millions of possible trends that might predict something bad months or years in the future. Doctors might do that kind of thing on a TV show like House, but I can assure you that they don't do it in real hospitals. Uh, in researching our book, I actually chatted uh, with a medical data science expert uh, and a physician named Mark Sendak, uh, who thinks about data science in hospitals for a living, specifically these workflow issues. Uh, here's what he told me. Physicians always say they want the data, Sendak said. Uh, but the problem is that there's no workflow for them to access or use the data. The way that the records are structured, it takes time and skill. You have to write a query, you have to download the data into a spreadsheet, and then you actually have to do things with it. But physicians are under so much stress already. They have 15-minute clinic visits. When exactly are they going to be playing with the data for their clinic and figuring out what it tells them that they need to do with their patients? So to me, that brings us to the deepest issue of all, uh, which is the fact that the entire system of medical data science was designed only to address questions at the level of a population not at the level of an individual patient. For example, how many lives could we save if we used GFR threshold A rather than GFR threshold B for detecting kidney disease? There must be hundreds of research articles that bear on that question or any such question you could find uh, in medicine. Uh, but medical data science is nearly silent at the level of basic statistical questions at the level of an individual patient. How are Joe's individual GFR readings changing over the long term? Where are they likely to go from here? What does that predict about his health next month or next year? These questions would have been straightforward for either a human or an algorithm to answer using Joe's historical medical record. Yet all of those data points were never given a chance to speak. There was no routine in place to sift his health record uh, for signs of an underlying chronic condition. There was no team of data scientists, no algorithm, no doctor with interdisciplinary training in statistics. And with some exceptions here and there, the same is true at most modern hospitals and clinics today. Uh, in speaking with friends and colleagues about this question, uh, I've noticed that many people seem to have this impression that there's like some kind of medical robot car behind the scenes of a modern hospital, like some fancy suite of algorithms that's analyzing individual patient data uh, and helping doctors make personalized treatment and diagnostic decisions. Maybe they get that impression from seeing how AI has transformed other industries. Maybe they get it from seeing just how much damn data entry doctors do at their own appointments. Uh, but whatever the reason, they're usually shocked when I tell them the reality, which is not only is there no rob robot car behind the scenes when it comes to individual patient level data analysis, there is literally nobody at the steering wheel. When I spoke with Catherine Heller about this topic, uh, her frustration uh, was clear. Uh, as she put it, it turns out that it's not enough to just collect all that data. You actually have to do something with it. Uh, and here she unknowingly was channeling Nightingale, who wrote of St. Thomas's Hospital in London in 1859 that it appears to keep its statistics more for the sake of checking obstreperous patients, which is an object, certainly, but not a scientific one. So the story of Joe, it turns out, is much more than the story of a man with kidney disease. It is the story of the vast canyon between what data could be doing for us and what the healthcare system lets it do. 
Uh, so if it, uh, if it seems to you that healthcare professionals are drowning in data and could really use a life preserver, uh, that a combination of human and machine intelligence could radically improve healthcare, uh, you're not alone in that thought. Uh, companies and researchers are hard at work already on a new generation of AI-based technologies that stand waiting in the wings, ready to help doctors and nurses do their jobs more effectively. Catherine Heller, uh, the reason she was looking at this data on kidney disease is because she has invented an app that will do this, right? Look at historical readings on kidney disease and predict their uh, function. It's the kind of thing that a doctor could call up on an iPad at the bedside of patients. So they really could bring that hypothetical look for trends item into their usual workflow. Uh, but for me, I'll, I'll close here with just a few thoughts about the barriers, both cultural uh, and legal. One big issue is incentives. I mean, will American hospitals buy into something like this? Uh, the question that every hospital will be asking itself is, what does it mean for buy my bottom line if you can better predict kidney disease? You do not have to be much of a cynic to observe that healthcare systems make money on advancing chronic disease. Uh, the legal system is another set of incentives, or disincentives in this case. Imagine being in Katherine Heller's position and pondering the wisdom of selling or even just giving away an app that could predict the, the chronic kidney disease. Uh, imagine the legal peril uh, that would, would await such an app designer when you think of the first inevitable case of missed kidney disease uh, for the simple reason that policymakers and, and uh, lawmakers have not gotten off their backsides to address a simple question, who ultimately is responsible for an algorithm's medical advice? How can we answer that question in a way that fosters innovation while simultaneously protects patients and their privacy? Another big issue is whether data science teams will get access to the data they need to improve existing AI systems and build new ones. Uh, the key thing that makes AI work is data at scale. That's why Google has great AI. That's why Amazon has great AI. And the more I ponder this topic, the more I have started to believe that this problem will not be solved until Google and Amazon own all of the hospitals. Uh, because thousands of patient records at one hospital are almost useless for this. You need millions or hundreds of millions of patient records. And there is no reason in principle why that cannot be done. But the practical and legal challenges of making that happen, well, it's just back to Nightingale's concerns about data standardization in the 1860s all over again. And this, the sources of social and financial value that go unrealized from failing to pool and failing to analyze the trends in those data sets to me are mind-boggling. Uh, now, even if there were a common data standard, let's say you could solve that problem, uh, hospitals, I found, are very hesitant to team up with data scientists, even under terms that guarantee patient privacy. Uh, in fact, I found them to be downright paranoid about it, uh, and nobody will really tell you why. Uh, the re other researchers, by the way, say the same thing. This isn't just me. Uh, nobody will tell you why, uh, but I, I've always thought it's for a pretty craven reason that hospitals in America don't want their competitors to reverse engineer their Byzantine pricing models, and so their default position as a, as a corporation is to just lock up all the hard drives. Uh, whatever the reason, all those electronic health records are used to generate very detailed bills, but almost never to help people require fewer hospital services in the first place. So I find this mind-boggling, uh, and I am not alone. Uh, can you imagine if we allowed hospitals to treat your kidneys in the same way that they treated the data about your kidneys? I mean, shouldn't be there a, a form that you could sign to overrule them, donating your data to save someone else's life? Uh, for me, if hospitals are the only ones with this information, and you are paying them to take care of you, how are they not using it? So. Uh, as, uh, as I close up here, as you now appreciate, uh, the, the barriers to adoption of AI uh, in the healthcare system uh, have nothing to do with technology or science. 
Uh, but there are enormous barriers of culture, law, and incentives. Some of these barriers are specific to America, but many others affect healthcare systems of the rich world. Uh, and the upshot is that the next data science revolution in, in healthcare won't just take one person like Florence Nightingale. Uh, it will take people who keep working on cool projects, uh, keep convincing their colleagues uh, that this stuff actually works, and keep generating good evidence uh, for policymakers and other stakeholders. It'll take doctors, nurses, software engineers, lawyers, database managers, privacy experts, venture capitalists, insurers, hospital administrators, and patients, all of whom must come together to make this thing work. Uh, it is a daunting task. And so I'll leave you here today with a simple prayer. Uh, may Florence Nightingale's power of will, what her sister Parthenope called that most resolute and iron thing, live on in us all. Thank you. Thank you.